I've got so much news, I don't know what to do with myself. So let's jump right into it. Kaylee Chella reporting with today's top stories. Just as Anthony Kennedy's retirement is setting off a momentous confirmation battle for President Trump's next Supreme Court nominee that is certain to consume the Senate, inflame partisan tensions, and shape the outcome of the midterm elections. All sides quickly mobilized Wednesday after Kennedy, a singular voice on the court whose votes have decided issues on abortion, affirmative action, gay rights, guns, campaign finance, and voting rights, sent shockwaves through Washington by announcing his retirement plans. Trump said he would start the effort to replace Kennedy immediately and would pick from a list of 25 names that he updated last year. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell declared that the Senate will, quote, vote to confirm Justice Kennedy's successor this fall. With Kennedy's departure, Republicans have a longed-for opportunity to tip the balance of the court. It already has four justices picked by Democratic presidents and four picked by Republicans, so Trump's pick could shift the ideological balance toward conservatives for years to come. Republicans also have a chance to make judicial nominees a top campaign issue, which could help motivate conservatives and evangelicals to vote in November. The playbook worked in 2016 when Republicans rallied around McConnell's successful block of then-President Barack Obama's nominee to the court, Merrick Garland. If Republicans unite behind Trump's selection, there's little that Democrats can do to stop it. Republicans changed the Senate rules last year so that Supreme Court nominees cannot be filibustered, meaning only 51 votes will be required to confirm. Last year, Trump's first nominee to the court, Neil Gorsuch, was confirmed 54 to 45, with three Democrats voting in favor. Those Democrats, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Joe Donnelly of Indiana, and Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, are facing difficult re-election races and could find it difficult to oppose the president's second pick. But while Republicans are aiming for speedy action, Democrats quickly argued that any decision should be put on hold until after midterm elections, citing McConnell's 2016 moves. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said it would be the, quote, height of hypocrisy to vote sooner. He said the voices of millions of Americans heading to the polls this fall, quote-unquote, deserve to be heard. McConnell refused to consider Garland because it was a presidential election year. He said the seat should be left open for the next president to fill. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, told reporters that the 2016 delay on Supreme Court confirmations only applied to presidential election years. He noted that Justice Elena Kagan was confirmed in 2010, a midterm election year. Another flashpoint in the court debate will be abortion rights, which puts a spotlight on key female Senator Republicans, Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Both have supported abortion access. The abortion issue could also prove difficult for Senator Dean Heller of Nevada, the most endangered Senate Republican running for re-election this fall, whose views have shifted against abortion rights. Schumer said the Senate should reject, quote, on a bipartisan basis, any justice who would overturn Roe v. Wade or undermine key health care protections. Speaking to reporters at the White House, Trump deflected a question on whether he should wait until after the midterm elections to announce a successor to Kennedy, saying he hasn't, quote, really thought about that. I think you want to go as quickly as possible. The president stressed his confidence in the picks on his list, saying, quote, you see the kind of quality we're looking at when you look at this list. In an unmarked brick building a few blocks from the Mexican border, immigrant parents clutched folders of birth certificates and asylum paperwork and sat on folding chairs waiting to use a single shared landline phone. They rushed to the phone as their names were called with word that a relative or government worker was on the line, perhaps with news about their children. 
For days and weeks now, some of the hundreds of parents separated from their children at the Mexican border by the Trump administration have been battling one of the world's most complex immigration systems to find their youngsters and get them back. For many, it has been a lopsided battle and a frustrating and heartbreaking one. Most do not speak English. Many know nothing about their children's whereabouts, and some say their calls to the government's 1-800-INFORMATION hotline have gone unanswered. Now, at least, they have the legal system on their side, since a federal judge in California ordered the Trump administration Tuesday night to reunite the more than 2,000 children with their parents in 30 days or 14 days in the case of those under five. But huge logistical challenges remain, and whether the U.S. government can manage to clear away the red tape, confusion, and seeming lack of coordination and make the deadline remains to be seen. The Justice Department and the Department of Health and Human Services, which is in charge of the children, gave no immediate details Wednesday on how they intend to respond to the ruling. Anthony Romero, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union, said he believes the deadline is realistic, saying, quote, It's a question of political will, not resources. Among the complicating factors, children have been sent to shelters all over the United States, thousands of miles from the border, and perhaps hundreds of parents have already been deported from the U.S. without their children. A white police officer was charged Wednesday with homicide in the shooting of an unarmed black teenager who was hit in the back while fleeing a traffic stop, a death that has fueled daily protests around Pittsburgh. Prosecutors cited Officer Michael Rossfield's inconsistent statements about whether he saw a gun in the teen's hand. The East Pittsburgh officer first told investigators that the teen turned his hand toward him when he ran from the car, and the officer, quote, saw something dark he perceived as a gun, according to the criminal complaint. During a second recap of last week's shooting, Rossfield told investigators he did not see a gun, and he was not sure if the teen's arm was pointed at him when he fired at 17-year-old Antoine Rose Jr., the 30-year-old officer had been sworn in just hours before the June 19th shooting after working at the police department for a couple weeks. He turned himself in and was released on a $250,000 bond. Allegheny County District Attorney Stephen Zapala said his office planned to ask a jury to consider the highest charge of first-degree murder. He argued against releasing Rossfeld on bail, saying, quote, You do not shoot someone in the back if they are not a threat to you. The car that Rose was in had been stopped on suspicion of involvement in a drive-by shooting, but investigators determined that Rose had done nothing, quote, except be in the car. Zapala said witnesses described Rose as showing his hands before the shooting, stressing that he did not have a weapon. When asked by reporters if he saw anything in Rossfield's past employment records that raised concerns, Zapala said yes, but declined to elaborate. Rose was shot three times in the right side of his face, in the elbow, and in the back by a bullet that stung his lung and heart, which was the fatal wound. Rosfeld pulled over the car in which Rose was a passenger about 15 minutes after reports of a drive-by shooting in nearby North Braddock. In that attack, a 22-year-old man was shot in the abdomen and was treated and released from the hospital. A witness described a car from that shooting as matching the one Rose was in. A bystander from a nearby home captured video of a portion of the stop and the shooting. As Rossfield took the driver of the car into custody, the passenger doors can be seen opening and Rose and another teen are seen running from the car. The officer then fires three shots. Two guns were found in the car and an empty gun magazine was found in Rose's pocket, investigators said. According to the complaint, the driver of the car who was operating as an unlicensed cabbie said he heard shots from the back of the vehicle where the second teen was sitting. He said Rose was sitting in the front and did not fire any shots during the earlier shooting. 
Rosfeld has been on an administrative leave since the shooting. He's due back in court on July 6th. It's being reported that the Supreme Court ruled Wednesday that government workers can't be forced to contribute to labor unions that represent them in collective bargaining, dealing a serious financial blow to Democratic-leaning organized labor. The court's conservative majority, re-empowered by Justice Neil Gorsuch, scrapped a 41-year-old decision that had allowed states to require that public employees pay some fees to unions that represent them, even if the workers choose not to join. The 5-4 decision will not only free non-union members in nearly two dozen states from any financial ties to unions, but also could encourage members to stop paying dues for services the court said Wednesday they can get for free. Union leaders said in reaction to the ruling that they expect to suffer some loss of revenue and also predicted that the same anti-union forces that pushed to get rid of the so-called fair shares that non-members had to pay will try to persuade members to cut their ties. Lily Eskelson Garcia, president of the National Education Association, said, quote, There are already plans. They are going after our members. But American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten said unions would not be dissuaded, saying, quote, Don't count us out. The labor leaders spoke out after the court ruled that the laws requiring fair share fees violate the First Amendment by compelling workers to support unions they may disagree with. Justice Samuel Alito said in his majority opinion in the latest case in which Gorsuch, an appointee of President Donald Trump, provided a key fifth vote for a conservative outcome, quote, States and public sector unions may no longer extract agency fees from non-consenting employees. Trump himself tweeted his approval of the decision while Alito was still reading a summary of it from the bench tweeting, quote, big loss for the coffers of the Democrats. In dissent, Justice Elena Kagan wrote of the big impact of the decision, writing, quote, there is no sugarcoating today's opinion. The majority overthrows a decision entrenched in this nation's law and its economic life for over 40 years. As a result, it prevents the American people acting through their state and local officials from making important choices about workplace governance. And it does so by weaponizing the First Amendment in a way that unleashes judges now and in the future to intervene in economic and regulatory policy. The court's three other liberal justices joined the dissent. This has been a report by Kaylee Chella for Anchor. To stay up to date, follow us on Twitter at Anchor, or you can follow me at Kaylee Chella. That's at C-A-I-L-L-E-Y Chella. Chella out.